From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Welcome, Cindy and Steve. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for having us. Well, here are the issues. President Joe Biden marked the annual U.S. Labor Day holiday by hitting the campaign trail in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania to help Democrats in midterm elections. As the campaign enters its final chapter, Democrats have realistic hopes of holding off the big losses in midterm elections that typically befall the party in power. That outcome would bolster Biden's standing while raising questions about former President Donald Trump's endorsement of some political candidates. The Washington Post reported that among the documents found by FBI agents at Trump's Florida resort last month was one describing another country's military defenses, including its nuclear capabilities. A federal judge approved Trump's request to appoint a special master in the Mar-a-Lago probe. The procedural victory for Trump means the Department of Justice will have to put a hold on its effort to determine whether the former president may have illegally taken classified documents from the White House and kept them at his home in Mar-a-Lago. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Ukraine on a previously unannounced trip. The U.N.'s nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, has called for Russia and Ukraine to establish a nuclear safety and security protection zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant as fears grow that the fighting could trigger a catastrophe at the plant. Liz Truss is Britain's new prime minister, replacing Boris Johnson, who formally tendered his resignation to Queen Elizabeth at her Balmoral estate in Scotland. The Israel Defense Forces, IDF, have admitted for the first time that there is a high possibility Palestinian-American Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh was shot and killed by Israeli fire while covering an Israeli military operation in May. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Steve, Labor Day traditionally starts a busy political season where campaigns scramble to excite voters for Election Day on November 8th. So how is President Biden's campaigning for Democrats going, especially with his latest speeches against Republicans who follow former President Donald Trump? Republicans are criticizing President Biden for what they say is going back on his promise of being a unifier because of his primetime speech back on September 1, as well as remarks he made at a private event for Democratic donors when he labeled extreme MAGA and MAGA Make America Great, which was ex-President Trump's campaign theme, Make America Great, MAGA. And he labeled these extreme MAGA Republicans as semi-fascists. But Biden has been out on the campaign trail to point to his bipartisan success, getting Republicans to join him in passing infrastructure legislation and gun control legislation, which passed Congress after years of trying by presidents in the past of both parties. Biden is out there trying to drum up support because he knows the only way he can get more done in the next two years is to get more Democrats into Congress because The Senate is split right down the middle, 50-50, Democrats and Republicans. And the House has got a very 
slight margin to Democrats, which makes his ability to get legislation passed very difficult. Right now, it looks like that process may pay off for Biden and the Democrats. If you look at six months ago, Republicans were looking at what's called a red wave, expecting to take control of the House and Senate because President Biden's approval ratings were in the toilet, they were low, inflation was high, especially gas prices. And we've talked about this before, political history shows that the president's party loses seats in Congress in the next election. Now, we're 60 days inside the time before midterm elections. President Biden's approval numbers are moving up slightly. Inflation may be topping out. Gas prices for sure are coming down. And added to the Democrats' wind at their back is the Supreme Court's ruling back in June that takes away a woman's right to an abortion. That has energized Democrats to court the votes of independents, young voters, and moderate Republicans. So Biden is out there trying to reverse what was believed to be a red wave. And many experts are looking at Democrats maybe not losing as many seats as they had expected. Maybe Democrats can not only hold the Senate, but add to their margin, which is really one vote, the vice president's vote. So Biden is really out there working to try and get Democrats elected and try to kind of walk this fine line of criticizing these extreme election deniers while still trying to curry favor with moderate Republicans and independents. I think Steve is exactly right that President Biden tried to draw a distinction between what he termed extremist MAGA Republicans who basically just refused to admit that their guy lost and have resorted to political violence in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol and law enforcement officers. So, yeah, unexpectedly, we now have election campaigns throughout the country which seem to be focused on Biden-Trump rematch. And I'm hearing from some Republicans that they're rather anxious and unhappy that the former president has strode right onto center stage again. And we'll get to this in a moment, but the FBI search of his Florida residence and club and his daily taking to social media about that and saying that he wants the 2020 election annulled immediately and things like that. That's not what Republicans want these midterm elections to be about. And as Steve said, the balance of power in Congress and a lot of important governor's races They want it to be about inflation, and they were hoping to make it about President Biden. But as Steve said, you know, things are looking quite different now than they did just a few weeks ago. Those are some really good points. And with only two months ahead, we'll have to see what the strategy is going to be with so little time to go before November 8th. But going to our next topic, and Cindy, you touched on that. The decision of a U.S. federal judge to stop the investigation of Donald Trump's seizure of classified documents until a special master review them has thrown the political and legal worlds into an uproar, pitting those who believe the former president has special legal privileges against those who think he should be treated like any other citizen. Now, courts occasionally appoint special masters, typically retired judges or lawyers, to decide if material seized by subpoenas or search warrants are protected by attorney-client privilege and therefore exempt from use in court. 
So in looking at all this and looking at the documents that were seized from former President Trump's resort, why has this decision for a special master caused such an uproar? Well, legal experts, Kim, most of them are saying that they are just really flummoxed and puzzled by this because the overwhelming majority of the documents are property of the U.S. government. We know that they are classified intelligence documents, national security documents. We just had a bombshell this week finding out that some of the documents pertained to a foreign country's defense capabilities, including nuclear capabilities. So these are very sensitive documents, and this could impact both U.S. national security and the national security of its allies. So this special master will at least delay the Justice Department in trying to get to the bottom of all this. And even former President Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, said that he doesn't think that the special master should be appointed. And he understands why the FBI went in and searched, because the fact is that The government, the National Archives and the Justice Department have asked Trump for these documents for about 18 months now. And we're told that they had all of them, but they didn't. You mentioned earlier, Kim, that usually a special master is appointed to go through documents to make sure that attorney-client privilege is kept. That's the conversations between an attorney and their client, which has got to be confidential. What's at issue now is executive privilege, which is the president can decide whether or not stuff can be disseminated to others or kept secret by the president. But executive privilege is usually almost always in the hands of the current president. So far, President Biden has not exercised executive privilege over any of these documents. In fact, he ceded that decision of executive privilege to the National Archives, which is responsible for gathering and holding and archiving all of these government documents. And I want to make it clear to the audience that while some things in these boxes of documents, uh, boxes of of stuff that was in Mar-a-Lago that the FBI took out. Some of them are former President Trump's personal property, such as passports that were in these boxes and newspaper clippings and other things. But official U.S. documents, especially those that are marked classified, top secret, are the property of the U.S. government, not the president or the former president that got to see them. Right now, there's a lot of questions about the judge's judgment about whether or not executive privilege is in the purview of her court. That said, the Justice Department is supposed to get together with the Trump lawyers to come up with a suggestion of who the special master should be and how it should go forward. And yes, the investigation is kind of at a standstill at the moment. Actually, now that we're within 60 days of an election, it does seem that any kind of indictment that may come out of the document drama against former President Trump will be on hold because, for the most part, the Justice Department does not like to deal with political figures this close to an election. Yes, that's a very good summary of the latest developments there. And then another aspect of this top former 
Trump strategist Steve Bannon was indicted on state fraud charges connected to his role in a fundraising scheme to build a border wall, according to two sources familiar with the matter, years after he received a presidential pardon in the federal case. The indictment comes weeks after Bannon was convicted on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress for defying a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol attack. Bannon says the indictment is partisan with the goal of destroying those closely aligned to Trump. What are your thoughts on this latest indictment on Bannon? It's going to be difficult for Bannon to get out of these charges, and the charges from the state of New York will likely go forward. It's yet another legal issue that Bannon has to deal with. Bannon finds himself in a lot of legal peril because of these charges out of the state of New York, along with his contempt of Congress charges that he was convicted on and faces jail time over. So Bannon is not cleared by any means by the presidential pardon that ex-President Trump gave him two years ago on this issue of fraud charges regarding the Build-A-Wall fundraising project. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken makes a surprise trip to Ukraine. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voaafrica.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. Well, Cindy, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Ukraine on a previously an unannounced trip to show Washington's continuing support for the country. Your thoughts on his surprise visit? Well, as we know, this is a very delicate security situation still, because we know that Russia can and has struck Kyiv. So Secretary Blinken making a bold visit to Ukraine, visiting a children's hospital to meet with some boys and girls who were, you know, the victims of Russian bombardments. He also met with the little uh, Ukrainian dog that has sniffed out so many mines, Patron, and gave him some doggy treats. And of course, met with the uh, Ukrainian foreign minister Kuleba and President Zelensky. And yeah, big announcements. We had this from Secretary of Defense Austin, a new drawdown of 675 million in arms, munitions, and DOD inventory for Ukraine. And Austin said that this is another critical point in the war with Russia, which is going now into its seven months. And Blinken signaling another quite large 2.2 billion in long term. He's notifying Congress of this, as you mentioned, aid to Ukraine and a lot of its neighbors in Eastern Europe and the Baltics who might be facing Russian aggression in the future. So this is a clear signal from the U.S. Yep, we're standing with Kyiv. We're going to be there for the long term. And if Russian President Putin thinks that he can just wait things out and that U.S. and European solidarity on this is going to crumble, it's not crumbling. This $2 billion that Blinken announced uh, for the countries surrounding Ukraine and, and near Russia is important because many of these countries, like the United States, 
They've given Ukraine a lot of military weaponry and various different support, and that's drawing down on their own munitions. And the United States is stepping in to help support that and try to replenish that for these countries along the border that are concerned about what Russia might do if they succeed in Ukraine. Also, Rafael Grossi, Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency, IAEA, delivered a speech to the UN outlining his agency's reports on significant damage at Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant since the start of Russia's invasion. So how concerning is this report and what does the U.S. say about it? It is very concerning, Kim, and we've seen continued Russian artillery fire near the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, and we've seen the plant go off the grid completely. Now the United Nations has become very involved in this, and it's just calling basically for a demilitarized zone around the plant, and Ukraine says that is fine with them as long as Russians pull completely out. It's the largest nuclear plant in Europe, and this is continuing uh, to be concerned, but it looks like it's getting a lot of attention now, and the Russians are coming under a lot of pressure to stop firing around it. Russia and Ukraine, they both accuse each other of shelling in the area around the plant. That said, IAEA inspectors who went into the plant They said that they saw Russian military equipment inside some of the plant buildings, which they say could interfere with the plant's operations. So the concern is great. Ukraine was the site of one of the biggest nuclear power plant disasters back in the 1980s when the Chernobyl plant went down. So there's tremendous concern, not just in Ukraine, but in the whole area around Ukraine, all of those countries could be affected if this nuclear power plant goes down and nuclear fallout is released into the atmosphere. Yes, and Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping plan to meet soon in Uzbekistan, announcing a summit that could signal another step in warming ties between two powers that are increasingly facing off against the West. What are the expectations of the meeting of these two leaders? Right. Well, this will also be very closely watched, Kim, because Russia being isolated from the West and the U.S. and European partners for energy sales and that kind of thing, turning to China. And so far, we've seen sort of lukewarm support from China, but there are some signs that they may be taking up that China is buying more of Russian energy at discounted prices. And this summit could be another sign that of closer backing for uh, China, for Putin. Well, let's go over to Britain. Britain has a new prime minister, Liz Truss, who was appointed by Queen Elizabeth this week. How are her policies viewed by the U.S.? For example, her stance on Brexit has led to some disagreements with Washington. One of the things Liz Truss has done, though, as foreign secretary under Boris Johnson, the previous prime minister, she stood with the United States in supporting Ukraine against the Russian aggression. So she gained a lot of credibility, especially in the U.S. eyes. She steps in at a time where Britain is an economic crisis, so to speak, facing threats from inflation, thanks mostly to high energy prices. They've had strikes by public service workers throughout the last several months. And 
the Bank of England projects that Britain will be in recession before the end of the year. One of her first acts was putting a cap on energy prices for electricity rates and gas rates for British citizens for the next two years. She also lifted a ban on fracking and approved new oil drilling in the North Sea as a way to try and get Britain more energy independent. But that's going to take some time for the oil from all of that to flow. So Liz Truss is walking a tightrope as far as Britain's economy is concerned. Well, let's get in our last topic. Hours after Israeli forces fatally shot Shireen Abu Akleh in May, the U.S. State Department called for the veteran Al Jazeera journalist killers to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. So, Cindy, months later, after Israel said this week that there is a high possibility that one of its soldiers killed Abu Akleh, where does this case stand now? Well, you're right. Israel acknowledged for the first time that she probably was killed by Israeli fire, but they said that there will be no criminal prosecution of anyone involved. And this, of course, triggered outrage by human rights officials and press freedom advocates. I was able to speak with Lena Abu Akleh, Shireen's niece, and she said this is just not right because she said that Shireen and the other journalists who were covering an Israeli raid on Janine in the West Bank had presented herself to the military. She was clearly wearing a bulletproof press vest, clearly marked press on it and a helmet. And she was shot basically in the neck in between the helmet and the vest. I mean, her niece told me that it was a precision shot. So she's saying that there is still no accountability. And I also spoke with some press freedom advocates who were disappointed at the State Department's reaction, saying, you know, the State Department is always talking about we stand for freedom of the press around the world. But they said, you know, the rhetoric is good, but the actions are not so good because here is an American citizen who was killed and the U.S. should be pressing for an independent investigation. The U.S. has pressured Israel to review its guidelines for using live fire in the West Bank, but that's about as far as the U.S. can go, short of conducting its own independent investigation, which probably won't be allowed to happen and would likely strain the U.S.-Israeli relationship even further than it already is strained. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. Steve, let's start with you. The one constant in my life has been Britain's Queen Elizabeth. She was on the throne before I was born. She's always been there. And while I don't necessarily follow the British royal family much, she demonstrated an indomitable spirit and her presence has always interested me. So imagining a world And a future without Queen Elizabeth is kind of strange and leaves a big hole in the world. Yes, it does. And Cindy? Yeah, very well said, Steve. I was thinking about and on a personal level really enjoyed the presidential portrait unveiling of the Obamas at the White House this week. Barack Obama and Michelle Obama and their portraits were unveiled. And this was resuming a 40-year tradition, which was stalled under former President Trump, who refused to let this happen while he was there. And Michelle Obama pointed out that traditions like this matter, not just for her and Barack 
but also for all Americans, because it's one more symbol of the peaceful transfer of power. And she said, and former President Obama said as well, we're renters in this White House, it's the people's house, and when our time is up, we move on. Michelle Obama also pointed out that they were the first African-American family to be in the White House, and she said, a girl like me was never supposed to be in a portrait on these walls, like Jacqueline Kennedy, right next to Jacqueline Kennedy, or Dolly Madison. I thought that was a very powerful and emotional moment for me. Yes, very nice. And we will close the show on those thoughts. My thanks go to our panelists, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent Cindy Sane and VOA Executive Producer Steve Reddish. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to visit us at voaafrica.com for all of our VOA current affairs shows. Thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.